Well, here we are. It's now in our text here. It's the early morning hours on Friday of this Passion Week. So just five days earlier, Jesus was welcomed into the city by great crowds of people shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. That's what this Sunday is, Palm Sunday. He was welcomed into the city with with blessing, with praise. Now here we are on a Friday early morning, and Jesus is all alone. He's been betrayed by Judas. He's been abandoned by his disciples. He's been denied by Peter, and he's been beaten and spit upon by his accusers. He's now bound, and he's being brought to Pilate, where in just a a few short hours, he's going to be mercilessly tortured, mocked further, and crucified on a wooden cross. In this moment here, at the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus is probably about maybe about eight hours away or so from breathing out his final breath. And when you consider the crucifixion of, of Jesus, what fills your mind and your heart? For most, it's, it's probably a mix of emotions, a mix of feelings, right? Some, for some in here, maybe it's a, a mix of sorrow and gratitude as you hear the text read before you. For others, maybe as you hear it read, it's, it's awe and wonder that, that he would endure this, this kind of suffering. But maybe for others in here, whoever is listening, it's bewilderment. Maybe it's more confusion. Like, why, why would he do this? Like, why was this necessary? Why does Christianity, maybe you're just questioning Christianity in general. Like, why does, why does this faith revolve around such a brutal death? And then, and then the subsequent resurrection that we'll celebrate next Sunday. Or for others, maybe it's just you look at this and you're like, you guys are out of your mind. This is just foolishness. Meaning, was, was Jesus to you, maybe he was, just, he was just some religious fanatic. He took things too far, said things he shouldn't have said, upset the wrong people, and ended up costing him his life. Regardless of where you fall on that spectrum of belief and understanding surrounding the death of Jesus, I'd at least rather have you there, because I can at least there we can engage your mind and your heart, because you're at least seeking to do something with this. You're trying to do something with the death of Jesus, make sense of it. However, the most dangerous place to be is actually in a state of apathy uh, where where we do nothing with it or mistakenly believe that the death of Jesus has nothing to do with you, doesn't bear any weight on my life whatsoever. Maybe even within the church itself, the story of the crucifixion has become so commonplace, so familiar that that we just kind of fail to dwell upon it any, any longer other than like, yeah, Jesus died. What's next? And, and, and so the this, this, this story, this unbelievable story of Jesus' death just kind of becomes almost like white noise. Like, yeah, I know. I know the story. Tell me something I don't know. The death of Jesus, whether you believe and understand its implications in your life or not, has eternal ramifications. The, the death and the resurrection of Jesus go hand in hand. And the death and resurrection of Jesus is not just an event that has taken place in history. It is the event of history. Which means that, that you're going to have to do something with it. Like it can't be brushed aside. It just can't. To do so would be absolutely detrimental to your, your soul. And so as believers, when we minimize the cross, which we are prone to do, when we take our eyes off of the cross, what we immediately begin to do is to elevate self. We've got to replace it with something because it's so impactful and so um, uh, important and significant to our lives that you can't brush it aside. To brush it aside means you have to replace what the cross brings about with something else. That's how important it is. And we immediately put self in place of it. 
because we all need a, a Savior. And so if the cross of Christ is not where we find salvation, then we're, we're going to replace it with ourselves. And listen, we are lousy saviors. The, the death of Jesus has accomplished something so magnificent, so rewarding, so eternal, so redemptive that to ignore it is not just a foolish thing to do. It is damning. What mankind did to Jesus should cause us to shudder because that's our heart as well, apart from God's grace. But what Jesus did for mankind should cause endless streams of worship and thankfulness to spring up within our hearts. You see, like Barabbas in this story, we are cursed rebels, murderers, thieves, consumed with vanity and with pride and with self-centeredness who would rather kill the God who brings conviction and healing and life than to kill the sin that resides within, which only brings misery, destruction, and death. Our sinful, unregenerate, depraved hearts are no different than the people who shouted in this crowd, crucify him. We have no redeeming quality within ourselves. It's why Jesus willingly had to go to the cross. He knew his sacrifice was mankind's only hope of finding redemption. And that apart from the work of Christ in his sinless life and on the cross, like we are a condemned people apart from Jesus, enslaved by sin and are heading toward an eternal death in an eternal hell. And yet what we see in the work of, of Christ on the cross is a, is a pathway toward healing and hope, redemption, forgiveness, salvation, deliverance from sin's grip on us. So since Jesus, motivated by love, redeemed us from our, our cursed and condemned and enslaved state by becoming a curse for us, we can now through faith receive acceptance, deliverance, and restored relationship with our God. And so how does Mark um, unfold this spectacular reality? How do we see the heart of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the passion of Jesus at the cross, and the necessity of, of his death for our life? Well, I believe Mark unfolds seven spectacular realities. You heard me right. Seven spectacular realities surrounding the death of Jesus. Number one. Number one, his willingness. His willingness. In the first five verses, Jesus is, is, is bound. He's bound, he's brought before Pilate. Now, this is the first time that, that we're being introduced to Pilate. So Pilate was the Roman governor over Judea, and he was the one who authorized Jesus' execution. Uh, the Jewish leaders, it's, it's been clear since Mark 3, the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus destroyed. They wanted him killed. They've been working on some way to, to get him out of the picture. They had already, this evening here, condemned him to death during the evening by, by accusing Jesus of blasphemy, making himself equal with God. In them, to them, in their eyes, that was something deserving of death. But the Jewish authorities... Though they could pronounce a death sentence, and that's what we see in, at the end of Mark 14, they pronounce a death sentence, but they, they were subject to the supervision of the Roman authorities that were over them to actually execute the sentence itself. And the Roman authorities also had the power to reverse that, that condemnation as well. Now, we've seen over the past several weeks as we've journeyed through the final week, this Passion Week leading to the cross, that the Jewish leaders are, are, are hatching plans and trying to find some way to accuse Jesus, to trip Jesus up, to get him to say something by which they can accuse him. 
Uh, so they, they had tried to trip him up time and time and time again, only to walk away every single time during their encounters with Jesus with their tail between their legs. And so they finally, on the, on the Wednesday of this Passion Week, they're, they're, they're hatching a plan with Judas. Judas comes to them and says, I will betray him to you, right? So they hatch this plan with Judas, one of his disciples, to have Jesus arrested. So they arrest him. They try him throughout the night by bringing all sorts of, of false witnesses before him, saying all sorts of things to accuse him of, of blasphemy. But even the witnesses that they're bringing to him throughout the evening, uh, they're, they're having their testimonies contradicting one another. It's a complete sham. The trial is a sham trial. This entire evening was an absolute joke. But they are desperate to eliminate him. Finally, Jesus declares this equality with God. And the high priest, if you remember from last week, tears, he rends his garments. It's this, it's this moment, this action of he can't be in the presence of such blasphemy and, and pronounces death uh, to Jesus because he is being blasphemous, making himself equal with God. The, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders that are there, the council, they condemn him to death. But they know that the Romans, that they now have to bring Jesus to you to execute him, they, they're not going to care that Jesus was making himself equal with God. The Romans aren't going to care about that. That, that wouldn't matter to them. So, so what do they do? They're, they're bringing Jesus before Pilate, and they're bringing this charge that Jesus is this insurrectionist, right? That he's this threat to Roman authority. Now, the Romans would care very much about that. Any threat to, to Roman imperialism is going to be snuffed out immediately. So the Romans are going to take care of this. That's why we see in verse 2, Pilate asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? We see that phrase, king of the Jews, used five times over the next 30 verses or so. Now, what's Pilate asking? He's saying, are you, are you setting yourself up as some rival king, some rival authority against Rome? That's what Pilate's thinking. Now, Jesus is a king, but everyone still mis misunderstands his kingdom. He's not seeking to usher in this, this rival earthly kingdom, but his, his kingdom is a heavenly one. And Jesus knows that this kingdom, this heavenly kingdom, his authority that's going to be given to him over heaven and over earth, his exaltation, his glory, he knows it's only going to come through his suffering. It's only going to be coming through his death, which is why, again, his death was necessary. It's why the mission of the cross was always in the forefront of Jesus' mind. He was, uh, was single-mindedly in pursuit of the cross. He knew what it was about to accomplish. It's why in, in Jesus in Luke 24, following his resurrection, is having this conversation with these, these, two, these two men walking down this road to this village called Emmaus. And these two men are struggling to comprehend all that had just taken place in Jerusalem that weekend concerning Jesus' death. Now Jesus enters into this conversation with them, and they don't recognize Jesus at, at, at first. And, and so he's, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, man, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what's taken place here? Right, Jesus, we thought was the Messiah, the King, and he was killed. And now, they're, now we're hearing rumors that, that some women have seen him alive today. So they're walking this path just greatly confused as to why all of this ha has taken place and what the meaning of it is. And Jesus says to them in Luke 24, verse 25, he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory. You see, Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly went to the cross. Notice Jesus, as he's standing here before Pilate, doesn't really say anything to defend himself. 
I mean, these false accusations are just coming one after another at him. And he doesn't say anything. Why? Why is this? I mean, think through the night. Like that, like it's recorded here that their, their testimonies were, were, were contradicting each other. Like anybody, like some third-rate lawyer could have stood in this and been like, guys, come on. Like this, this is thrown out. This is ridiculous. But Jesus says nothing throughout this whole ordeal. False accusation after false accusation. Come to Jesus and he says nothing. Gives no defense. You would think someone wanting to get away from the cross, wanting to save his life, would look at this trial and just see none of this is making sense and be able to easily defend himself and get out of it. Why did Jesus say nothing? Was it because he was cornered? Surely we've seen over the past few weeks as we've journeyed through Mark that that Jesus has all these tense encounters with the religious leaders and that Jesus is answering them one after another and dominating any question and accusation that comes his way. So why is he silent here in the most important moment of his life, either life or death, and he's silent? It's because Jesus knows to push back, to show and reveal the falseness of the accusations would actually result in his acquittal. See, Jesus here wasn't looking to escape the cross, but to embrace it. Why? For the glory of God's name in the redemption of sinful humanity because of love. His willingness purchased our acceptance. Number two, his substitution. In verses 6 through 15, we're introduced to Barabbas. In verse 7, it says, Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, There was a man called Barabbas. Now, one of the things Pilate would do during the the Passover was to release a a, a prisoner. Now, most likely, see, Pilate was all about maintaining order and peace. And during Passover, a lot of times when there's thousands and thousands of people entering Jerusalem, uh, riots would break out. So Pilate is seeking, there's a reason he's here. He's there to try and maintain order. And so one of the things Pilate had done was start this tradition of, I'm going to release one of the prisoners. Whoever he asked for will be released from prison. Most likely, as I said, to maintain some semblance of peace in the region between the Jews and the Romans. But in this act, even of what Pilate's doing, there's a a lot of symbolism in it as as the Jewish people are already, because this is Passover, they're reflecting on their freedom from enslavement to Egypt, right? There's probably a reason why then riots would break out because they're thinking they've been delivered. Now Rome's oppressing us. And so there's there's a reason why riots would break out. So Pilate probably very shrewdly creates this tradition here to try, and, to try and throw him a bone, to try and show peace. Now we know from other gospel accounts that Pilate doesn't want to execute Jesus. He doesn't want to execute him because he doesn't think he's deserving of the death that they're accusing him of. And here in Mark's accounting in verse 10, Pilate is even thinking that they just want Jesus killed because they're envious of him. They're envious of his influence that he's having among the crowd, so they just want to get him out of the picture. So he's looking for ways. Pilate's looking for ways to release him, and he thinks maybe this one will do it. So he brings out Barabbas. This is a known murderer, an insurrectionist, a rebel. More than likely, Barabbas was probably the worst of the worst. And contrasted against Barabbas is Jesus, a teacher, a healer, a rabbi, a servant who is meek and mild and gentle. In Pilate's mind, he's got to be thinking, surely, Surely they're going to demand Jesus to be set free here. But we know what happens, right? The people are stirred up, it says, by the religious leaders. And they demand and start shouting for Barabbas' release and start demanding Jesus' execution. Think of the irony here. 
think of the irony in this moment. Jesus is being accused before the Romans of being an insurrectionist, a threat to Rome's power. And so they want Jesus killed, and then they demand the release of a known murderer, an insurrectionist. Like, what, what's taking place in this moment? Like, Jesus, the innocent son of God, walks up the steps to take the place of Barabbas as he comes down. Jesus, the innocent son of God, takes the place of Barabbas, the guilty and the condemned. The apostle Paul maybe says it best in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What we see in this substitution of, of, of Jesus for Barabbas is really a beautiful picture of what the cross accomplished. Barabbas, though guilty, was treated at that moment as innocent, and Jesus, though he was innocent, was treated as guilty. Why? So that you and I could become sons and daughters of God, so that, so that we could, through faith in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, become the righteousness of God. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. says, without knowing it, the religious leaders and Pilate and Barabbas were all part of a tapestry of grace which God was weaving for sinners. Their actions spoke louder than their words, louder than the cries of the crowds for Jesus' blood. Jesus was not dying for his own crimes, but for the crimes of others. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. He did not die for himself. He died for us. Number three, his humility. His humility. As we continue through the text in verses 16 through 20, Jesus has been now delivered over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Mark mentions here that a whole battalion was, was called together. This will have been roughly around 600 soldiers in total. As he's handed over, it says that he was, he was scourged. None of the gospel accounts actually really give much detail to what this scourging entailed, but we, we know historically it was a, a level of suffering that none of us could ever comprehend. A beating that was so horrific that many of the condemned who entered into that room to be, to be beaten, to be scourged, actually would never make it out of that room even alive. Here now, after this horrific beating, the soldiers continue their taunting and mockery of, of Jesus. And so Mark says that a, a purple cloak is draped around him, a symbol of royalty, crown of thorns is pressed into his skull. A mock scepter is created by which they use to then beat him in the head with. These soldiers then begin kneeling down in this mock worship of Jesus and are spitting on him and just humiliating him to the best of their ability. It is in this moment the lowest of lows of human depravity. I think of what's happening in this moment. Here in the midst of these, these men is their creator. <laughs> Like the one who made them, the one who is sustaining them, the one by which all of life exists in their midst is the eternal word of God. John 1, 3 says all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus here is suffering humbly, willingly at the hands of the very people he created. The, the thorns that were needed to create the crown buried into his skull were created by Jesus. The reed that was used to beat him in the head was made by Jesus. 
The glands that produce saliva that these men used to spit upon him was part of God's design for the human body. The, the breath these soldiers needed to take in and out in order to continue these, these, these insults that they were hurling at him over and over again it was only possible because God, the creator, in that moment, the eternal word in that moment was sustaining their lives and allowing their lungs to breathe in and breathe out. I mean, nothing here was possible. The abuse Jesus suffered was not possible without a creator God who sustains all of life and allowed it to take place. Jesus suffered unbearable treatment and ridicule and shame at the hands of those he came to save. If you ever doubt the humility and love of Jesus, you only need to look at what he endured at the cross. And there's no way you can come away from that not knowing and seeing the heart that Jesus has for rebels like us. Number four, his self-denial. His self-denial. Look at this next section in Mark's gospel outlined specific, specifically maybe verses 21 through 32. In this section here, Mark, Mark reveals to us and, and, and records that Jesus is now being led to his place of execution. And so he was inside the city gates during this beating, but now he's got to make his way outside of the city walls to where he will be killed with all the other criminals. But to get there, he's going to have to carry the very cross beam that his hands will be nailed to. The beam itself weighed probably close to about 100 pounds. Jesus began carrying his cross, but at some point along the, the, the path toward his place of execution, he stumbled and fell on his way to Golgotha. This makes sense when you, when you understand what all Jesus had endured up to this point. He's been awake for over 24 hours. He's been mocked and beaten almost to death, and now he's being forced to carry this massive beam. And so a man named Simon is called along the road who's watching this take place to carry the cross for Jesus. Now, once they make it to this, this place of execution just outside the city walls, it says that in verse 23 that Jesus was offered this, this drink. It was wine mixed with, with myrrh. But, but Mark says and records, and the gospel, other gospel accounts record this as well, he refused to drink it. Right? So why? Why did he refuse to drink this? Well, what was this drink? Well, the the drink itself was something that would dull or numb the pain. But again, Jesus sees this and refuses to have anything numb. Now, why? You've got to ask yourself why. I've got a friend of mine um, years ago, like we, would, we flew to New York quite a few times, and he hated to fly. Like just absolutely was, was just terrified of flying. And so uh, anytime that we would be in the, the uh, terminal getting ready to board the flight, he'd start popping drowsy Dramamine. Right? He's a big guy, so he's like popping like Pez dispenser, man, just popping these things. So by the time we get onto the plane, you're, you're like carrying him onto the plane. Right? He is just kind of, he's, just, he's there, but he's not there. Right? You get him to his seat, and then he probably pops another one, and he's, just, he's out. He's out, and then the plane lands, and then he kind of wakes up, stumbles, wipes the drool off his mouth, and then we help kind of move him out, and he kind of like comes back. And, and like that was the, way he, the only way he could really fly was to just not even be present. And so technically, when you think of it, like he flew, but he didn't experience the flight. He experienced the bumps and the turns and the takeoffs and the landings. He didn't experience what everyone else on that plane experienced. He was numb to it. He was deadened to it. See, Jesus here is, is refusing to be numbed to what the cross is bringing about. Why is that? See, Jesus is fully embracing all that the cross would bring. Jesus isn't looking to 
to numb the experience, but rather, as we've seen, he's fully embracing it. What's Jesus doing in this moment? He's denying his comfort. He's, he's suffering fully, and he is experiencing on the cross the full wrath of God on that cross so that through faith in his life, his death, and his resurrection, we would be granted full pardon and acceptance with God. Jesus wasn't looking to escape but embrace. He's not giving away part of himself for the redemption of sinners, but he is giving away all of himself. See, they take his garments, you see in verse 24. They cast lots to see who would get to keep them. See, he goes to his death giving away everything. He's humiliated on that cross, hanging there nearly naked, stripped of all of his clothes. Jesus gave away all of himself so that you and I would be clothed fully in his righteousness. He's crucified sometime mid-morning. Mark says it was the third hour. This would have been sometime between 9 a.m. and and noon. He's nailed to a cross and he's left to die between two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Left. The king is now crucified. As he's hanging there slowly dying, he continues to suffer the mockery and ridicule of everyone that's walking by him. But I want to notice one taunt that Mark actually singles out in verses 31 through 32. It says that so also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him. And they're saying he saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and will believe. In, in Matthew's gospel, think back to the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested. In Matthew's gospel, it records that, that, that as they're coming to take Jesus, Peter grabs his sword and he attacks those who are coming to arrest Jesus. But what's Jesus say to Peter? He says, put away your sword. Why does he say this? Says, do you think that he says, do you, do, you, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now that, that's anywhere in the ballpark of 50 to 60,000. Like Jesus, like, listen, like, I'm not being forced into this, Peter. Put your sword away. Like, I could call out whatever I needed in a moment and get out of this. Right? Could Jesus now here in Mark 15 on the cross as they're calling, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. You saved everyone else. You can't even save yourself. See, could Jesus have come down off that cross? Absolutely. He could have appealed to the Father and come down off the cross. He went to the cross. He was not forced upon it. So why did he then remain? We have to ask that question. Then why did he remain there? Because to come down from that cross meant it would have saved his life, but it would not then have saved our life. To save himself would mean that he would not have saved others. See, Jesus denied himself for the sake of others. He remained on that cross so that you and I could be saved. See, our salvation is possible only because Jesus did not save himself from death. One author says it this way, that these men claim they would have believed if, if he had come down from the cross, but we believe precisely because he stayed on it. That's the hope of the cross. Number five, his sacrifice. His sacrifice. Mark highlights five events taking place as Jesus is, is dying in verses 33 through 39. Five different events taking place. There's darkness over the land. 
there's, there's this cry of his sorrow, right? So he, he records one of Jesus' sayings on the cross. So this cry of sorrow. And there's this final cry that, that Mark records of this uttering at, at his death. There's the tearing of the temple curtain that takes place. And then there's the confession of Jesus' deity by the guard. We'll get to that last one in our next point. But when you take into account all four gospel accounts, Jesus uttered seven different different sayings from the cross. Mark only records one of them, and then he mentions that Jesus uttered something as he dies. So Mark's focus here is Jesus is hanging on that cross. A lot of times people like to focus on the act of crucifixion. The gospel uh, accountings never mention what took place at a crucifixion, namely because the people reading this knew what took place, but but the, the focus of the gospel writers is not the act of nails being driven through his hands and his feet. That's not the, the purpose here. The, the focus of these gospel writers is what is happening through the cross. What is taking place as Jesus is on that cross? See, Mark's focus here is on the sacrifice and the forsakenness of Jesus. That's what he wants to get across to his readers. Jesus here died in darkness. After hanging on the cross for a few hours, around noon, darkness covered the whole land, it says in verse 33. Throughout the scriptures, darkness has always been seen as a a sign of God's judgment. We see it in in, in Amos and Zephaniah. We see it in the book of Micah. In Isaiah, darkness is seen as God's judgment being poured out on his people uh, because of their sin. And so in Isaiah chapter 5, it says, Therefore, the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all of this, uh, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 30 says, And they will growl over it on that day, like the, the, the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment. Here at the cross, we're seeing darkness. We're seeing God's judgment for sin as it's being poured out on his beloved son. Remember that this is Passover week, a time when the Jewish people were remembering their deliverance from bondage and slavery to Egypt. Of of the ten plagues that God struck Egypt with to purchase their deliverance, do you remember what the ninth plague was? It was darkness. It was darkness over the whole land. What was the tenth and final plague? It was the death of a firstborn son. See, how was Israel, as they were enslaved to Egypt, how were they delivered and set free? They were set free through the sacrifice of a lamb through blood being poured out. That, what's happening out here at the, at the cross is their minds and hearts are already thinking of Passover and God's deliverance. God's trying to draw them up to see this, this is the ultimate exodus. This is the ultimate deliverance. That God's judgment here in this moment for sin is being poured out on his son. And then how do we escape bondage to sin and to death? How do we experience the ultimate exodus? It's through the sacrifice of the firstborn son, the lamb of God. Isaiah 53, verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God because of our sin. He was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Mark's only recorded saying of Jesus is found in verse 34. 
Eloi, Eloi, Lema, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this moment, Jesus is experiencing aloneness, forsakenness, something he's never experienced before. The pain of the crucifixion, though excruciating, was not the worst part for Christ. It was him being cut off from the Father. It was the forsakenness that he felt because he was bearing the weight and the wrath for mankind's sin as he takes it upon himself, the penalty for you and for me. Tim Keller maybe says it best that this forsakenness, this loss was between the father and the son who had loved each other from all eternity. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Jesus was being cut out of the dance. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Why? Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a a rhetorical question. And the answer is for you and for me and for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead on Jesus. You see, Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. And we know this because as Jesus uttered his final cry and as he gave up his spirit to death, it says the curtain of the temple, uh, the the curtain that, that stood in the way of man's entrance into God's presence, into the holy of holies in this temple was torn in two from top to bottom, very specific to show that it wasn't somebody at the bottom ripping it. This is a 60 foot by 30 foot curtain, thick Right? They're keeping people out and it tore in two from top to bottom. This most holy place where the presence of God dwelt. A place that could only be approached once a year by the high priest to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people was now open. It was open because Jesus had finally paid the final price. Because, the, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we no longer need a priest because Jesus is the high priest. Because of Jesus, we no longer need to offer sacrifice. Jesus is that final sacrifice. Through his death, the power of sin was destroyed. The condemnation of sin has been destroyed. And we can now, with boldness and confidence, enter into the presence of God without being destroyed because of Christ. His wounds, his sacrifice is what brings us peace With God, his wounds have healed us. Number six, his deity. His deity. Verse 39 says the centurion, after he's seen all that's taken place, he he rightly declares in this moment that Jesus truly was the son of God. Not only was the death of Jesus necessary, but it was necessary that it be God himself who provided the way of salvation. In, In Genesis 3, when When man sins and everything on earth and within ourselves is cursed and broken, the best Adam and Eve could do in that moment was to run. It's the best they could do. They they ran, they they hid, they tried to cover their nakedness with with fig leaves, with like I mean it's just a just a mess. And that's the best they could do. But in that moment, as as God enters into the garden with them, as he's calling them, I mean what a what a moment of grace. Right, that God's come to me. Don't run, don't run and hide. From, come to me. What do we see God do for them? In Genesis three twenty one, it says that the Lord God made for Adam 
and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. You see, humanity is incapable of fixing themselves. The best we can do, best we can do, is, is run. Run from the problem as best we can. Run from our shame. Try and numb our guilt. Try and create some form of man-made solutions that, that always will fall short, that never actually fix the, the deep brokenness within us. I mean, why do we run to alcohol and drugs and pornography and other addictions? Why do we run to our careers? Why do we, why do we run to our financial portfolios, our hobbies when confronted with difficulty and shame and guilt in our lives, when we're confronted with our own mortality? It's because we're coming face to face with our problem and, and we're trying to find a solution and we can't find a solution. We just try and run from it, numb ourselves to it, to, to escape for a moment. That's the best mankind can do. See, man is not the answer to man's problem. We needed another. We needed someone to do what we cannot do, to live how we cannot live, to give what we cannot give. It was only Jesus, God in the flesh, who could give us what we so desperately needed, which is hope and right standing with God through no work of our own, but through the sinless and atoning work of Jesus. See, Mark wants his readers here as he records the centurion's confession. He wants his readers here to confess Jesus as Lord as well, to confess Jesus as the Christ, to confess Jesus as the true Son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. How do you answer the question of who Jesus is? Lastly, number seven, his courage, his courage. There's no doubt that Jesus' embrace of the cross was through spirit-empowered courage. And even in his death, his courage impacted others. We see that in the remaining verses of chapter 15, where we're introduced to Mary Magdalene, a woman who Jesus had delivered from demonic possession. We're introduced to another woman named named Mary and, and a woman named Salome. Most likely, she was the mother of James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, Their presence here not only established eyewitness testimony to the death of Jesus, but Mark is setting things up for what will take place on on Sunday morning. But also present here in these remaining verses is a man named Joseph. Mark mentions that Joseph was a member of the council. What council is that? It's actually the very council that had just pronounced judgment on Jesus earlier that morning. Which means Joseph here was a Pharisee. Yet yet Joseph was not in agreement with the Pharisees and their judgment. Yet yet still out of fear, he remained quiet as Jesus was sentenced. But upon witnessing, I believe, the events of Jesus' suffering, witnessing the events of Jesus' death, just like the centurion just sees us all and just says, this is God. Like this this Pharisee here, who, who was a secret follower of Jesus, Mark records that he took up courage and he went to Pilate and asked for the body. This was a huge risk. Because it exposed uh, Joseph and his belief. Jesus had just been executed. His disciples have all fled out of fear. Peter has denied knowing Jesus. This was not a safe time to associate yourself now with Jesus. And yet Jesus' courage gave even Joseph and these women courage to follow. Even though it seemed that in this moment to them all had been lost. Yet we know this is not the end of the story. Here we are now at the, at the close of the day on Friday, Jesus is hung on the cross for roughly about six hours before he died. 
At this moment here, it's, it's, a, it's a rush. It's a rush to get Jesus wrapped and buried before sundown. Remember, the Jewish day began at sundown, and so the Sabbath was quickly approaching. And they could not be bearing and doing work as the sun went down on the Sabbath. And so there's this rush to get Jesus off the cross into a tomb and, and wrapped and anointed as best they could before the Sabbath would begin. So in their rush, there were most likely certain uh, cultural burial practices that were done uh, in haste. That's why on Sunday morning, as we'll see this next week, there were these women again heading back to the tomb. Why were they heading back to the tomb? Well, they're about to anoint Jesus' body the, the proper way. But before Sunday comes, there's now Saturday. There's now Saturday. We're about to enter Saturday. No doubt the most despairing and depressing day of these people's lives. The disciples are all in hiding, fearing for their own lives. And the only one at Jesus' grave in that moment were a few women and a Pharisee. Everyone here is in misery. Their dreams have been shattered. There's guilt and shame over probably abandoning Jesus when, when he needed them most in their mind and confusion and heartache and deep sorrow. Put yourself in the story now with them. Put yourself in that room with them all huddled together trying to figure out what just happened. Do you see them all in that room together quietly hurting? Do you feel that quiet pain? The tension, the heartache, do you hear people around the room sobbing, weeping, groaning? What, what misery that, that day must have been for them. Because in that moment, they were completely without hope. They were completely without hope. Everything that they thought, their dreams had just been shattered. This is our life. This is your life. Apart from the death of Jesus and the power of the resurrection. Without the death of Jesus, there is no payment for sin. And without the resurrection, which we're going to celebrate next week, there is no power in the death of Jesus and what it brought about. Without the resurrection, we are still Barabbas. Without the resurrection, without the death of Jesus, we're still living in a Saturday. We're still condemned and enslaved to our sin, still without hope. Yet because Jesus is alive, the death of Jesus and the payment that he made for our sin has been paid in full. No longer are we enslaved to sin, enslaved to death. No longer do we stand condemned. No, we are free and forgiven and delivered from sin's power. Jesus has walked the steps up as we have been able to come down free and innocent. This is what the death of Jesus purchased for us. This is what the resurrection will bring about. Do you believe this? Have you turned from your sin, turned in faith to Christ and what he accomplished for you with his life, his death, his resurrection? Church, do you grasp the wonder of the cross, understanding our new life that's been given to us in him? It's because of Christ we no longer live in the Saturday after the cross. We live in the Sunday of his resurrection hope in that. Let's pray. God, we come to you thanking you for the beauty of the cross. It, that seems so wrong to even say that, knowing the, the horrific nature of it, but yet what the cross brought about is our joy, is our hope, is our peace. And so God, now as we, as we sit underneath the weightiness of the cross, there is to be a heaviness to this because, because it's our sin which, which brought him there, which put him there, yet he willingly went there and remained there. 
And so we believe and we are saved precisely as we heard because he stayed up on that cross. And so God, may we um, in, in praise and worship and adoration lift up our hands in joyful thanks to you who has done what we cannot do, who has given what we cannot give, who has paid the price and made a way to be made right again with our creator. So God, may the church rejoice in that. May that be the truth. May that be the proclamation that we joyfully and boldly declare. God, for those in this room, those that are hearing these words in this moment who have not yet believed, may they see the wonder of the cross, the necessity of the cross, that they need Jesus. God, may they turn from sin, turn from their, their, their looking to themselves to, to provide salvation, to make things right. May they stop trying to cover themselves with nothing but leaves. May they stop trying to run from you and hide or escape their issues, their brokenness, their problems, but they, may they run and joyfully embrace the cross as you embrace the cross and there find hope, salvation, forgiveness, and deliverance. So God, this is the work that only your spirit can do. This is work, the work Jesus brought about. Now, as the church, may we joyfully worship you for it. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.